Welcome to Used and Abused, a music podcast. This week's show is about Mount St. Helens. This is episode four, Mount St. Helens, part one, history of the mountain. While I do own the album with various artists called Your Spirit Lives On, the musical legend of Harry Truman, a very special collection of Mount St. Helens songs, I will not be talking about this album at the end of today's show. Today is the 38th anniversary of my, of the May 18, 1980 eruption. Today will be about the history of the mountain, including that fateful Sunday, 1980. I'll also give you some of my personal accounts of what life was like during the 1980 event, which stretched from March to the May 18th day. But before we get into this, let's give out a couple of shout outs. First shout out I want to give is on Twitter to Rich Thomas and on Instagram, Kaya Allred and CJ Karcher. Thank you for the follows. Now let's move on to this day in music. May 18th, 1980. Drummer Peter Chris leaves Kiss. He is replaced by Eric Carr. Let's get on with the show. Mount St. Helens at 8.32 a.m. Pacific Daylight Savings Time. 38 years ago today had a major destructive eruption that not only changed the shape and elevation of the mountain, but changed the lives of the people that were around it. Well, let's start with a little history of Mount St. Helens. Part 1, Mount St. Helens. The volcano is located in the Cascade Range and part of the Cascade Volcanic Arc, a segment of the Pacific Ring of Fire that includes over 160 active volcanoes. Currently here in 2018, one of the most known volcanoes is right in the middle of the Ring of Fire, located in Hawaii. Kilauea Volcano is currently erupting, not only spewing ash, but also with lava flows. At this moment, I'd like to remind everyone to please listen to the USGS and also your local leaders over in Hawaii. Thank you. But today is not about Mount Kil- or about Kilauea. Today is about Mount St. Helens. Let's get back to Mount St. Helens and its history. Native American lore contains numerous legends to explain the eruption of Mount St. Helens and other Cascade volcanoes. The most famous of these is the Bridge of the Gods legend by the Klikitat people. In their tale, the chief of all gods and his two sons, Pato and White East, traveled down the Columbia River from the far north in search of a suitable area to settle. They came upon an area that is now called the Dalles and thought they had never seen a land so beautiful. The sons quarreled over the land. To solve the dispute, their father shot two arrows from his mighty bow, one to the north and the other to the south. Pato followed the arrow to the north and settled there while White East did the same of the arrow to the south. The chief of the gods then built the bridge of the gods so his family could meet periodically. When the two sons of the chief of the gods fell in love with a beautiful maiden named Luit, she could not choose between them. The two young chiefs fought over her, burying villages and forests in the process. The area was devastated and the earth shook so violently that the huge bridge fell into the river, creating the cascades of the Columbia River Gorge. For punishment, the chief of the gods stuck, struck down each of the lovers and transformed them into great mountains where they fell. Why East, with his head lifted in pride, became the volcano known today as Mount Hood. Pato, with his head bent toward his fallen love, was turned into Mount Adams. The fair Luwit became Mount St. Helens, known to the click itats as Luwala Clu, which means smoking or fire mountain in their language. The mountain is also a sacred importance of the Cowlitz and Yakima tribes that also historically lit, historically 
lived in the area. They find the area above its tree line to be of exceptional spiritual significance, and the mountain features prominently in their creation myth and in some of their songs and rituals. In recognition of this core cultural significance, over 12,000 acres of the mountain have been listed on the National Register of Historic Places. Mount St. Helens is an active stratovolcano located in the Pacific Northwest and is in the U.S. state of Washington, located 50 miles northeast of Portland, 96 miles of Seattle. Royal Navy Commander George Vancouver, a British officer of the Royal Navy, and the officers of the HMS Discovery made the Europeans first recorded sighting of Mount St. Helens on May 19, 1792. While surveying the northern Pacific coast, he named the mountain after British diplomat Aline Fitzherbert, first Baron St. Helens, on August October 20th, 1792. In late 1805 and early 1806, members of the Lewis and Clark expedition spotted Mount St. Helens from the Columbia River, but did not report either an ongoing eruption or a, re or a recent evidence of one. They did, however, report the presence of quicksand and clogged channel conditions at the mouth of the Sandy River near Portland, suggesting an eruption by Mount Hood sometime in the previous decades. In 1829, Hall J. Kelly led a campaign to rename the Cascade Range as the President's Range, and also to rename each ca major Cascade Mountain after a former President of the United States. In his scheme, Mount St. Helens was to be renamed Mount Washington. The first authentic eyewitness report of a volcanic eruption was made in March 1835 by Meredith Gardner while working for Hudson's Bay Company stationed at Fort Vancouver. This area of Washington state has multiple volcanoes. Those include Mount Rainier, the highest vol cascade volcano near Seattle, Mount St. Helens's brother, Mount Adams, and Mount Hood, nearest major volcano peak in Oregon. St. Helens is geologically young compared with the other Cascade volcanoes, formed only within the past 40,000 years, and the pre-1980 summit cone began raising about 2,200 years ago. St. Helens is considered the most active in the Cascades within the, the 10,000 years. Prior to the 1980 eruption, Mount St. Helens was the fifth highest peak in Washington. The peak rose more than 5,000 feet above its base, where their lower flanks merged with adjacent ridges. The mountain is six miles across at its base, which is at an elevation of 4,400 feet on the northeastern side and 4,000 feet elsewhere. At the pre-eruption tree line, the width of the cone was four miles. Ancestral stages of eruptive activity. Early eruptive stages of Mount St. Helens are known as the Ape Canyon stage. Now this is around 40 to 35,000 years ago. The Cougar stage, 20 to 18,000 years ago, and the Swift Creek stage, roughly 13 to 8,000 years ago. The modern age is known as the Spirit Lake stage, starting about 2,500 BC. St. Helens started its growth about 37,600 years ago during the Ape Canyon stage. With eruptions of hot pumice and ash, 36,000 years ago, a large mudflow cascaded down the volcano. Mudflows were significant forces in all of St. Helens' eruptive cycles. Ape Canyon eruptive period ended around 35,000 years ago and followed by 17,000 years of relative quiet time. Parts of the ancestral cone were fragmented and transported by glaciers 
14 to 18,000 years ago during the last glacial period of the current ice age. The second eruptive period, the Cougar stage, started with about 20,000 years ago and lasted for 2,000 years. Pyroclastic flows of hot pumice and ash along with dome growth occurred during this period. Another 5,000 years of dormancy followed, only to upset by the beginning of a swift of the Swift Creek eruptive period, typified by pyroclastic flows, dome growth, and blanketing of the countryside with tephra, which is fragmental material produced by a volcanic eruption, regardless of composition or emplacement mechanism. Tephra fragments are classified by size, ash, particles smaller than 2 millimeters in diameter, volcanic cinder between 2 to 64 millimeters in diameter, and volcanic bombs or volcanic blocks larger than 64 millimeters in diameter. Swift Creek ended 8,000 years ago. A dormancy of about 4,000 years was broken around 2500 BC with the start of the Spirit Lake stage. With the Smith Creek eruptive period, when eruptions of large amounts of ash and yellowish brown pumice covered thousands of square miles, an eruption in 1900 BC was the largest known eruption from St. Helens. Judged by the volume of one of the tephra layers from that period, this eruptive period lasted until about 1600 BC, followed by 400 years of dormancy. St. Helens woke ag awoke again around 1200 BC with the start of the Pine Creek eruptive period. This lasted until about 800 BC and was characterized by smaller volume eruptions, numerous dense, nearly red hot pyroclastic glow flows sped down St. Helens flanks and came to rest in nearby valleys. A large mud flow partly filled 40 miles of the Lewis River Valley sometime between 1,000 and 500 BC. The next eruptive period began around 400 BC with the start of the Castle Creek period. This characterized by a change in composition of St. Helens lava with the addition of olivine and basalt, the pre-1980 summit cones started to form during the Castle Creek period. Significant lava flows, in addition to the previously much more common fragmented and pulverized lava and rocks distinguished this period. Large lava flows covered parts of the mountain, including one around 100 BC, that traveled all the way into the Lewis and Kalama river valleys. Others, such as a cave basalt known for its system of lava tubes, flowed up to nine miles from their vents. During the first century, mud flows moved 30 miles down the Tootle and Kalama river valleys and may have reached the Columbia River. Around 400 years of dormancy, the Sugar Bowl eruptive period was short and was different from other periods in Mount St. Helens' history. It did, however, produce the unequivocal laterally directed blasts known for Mount St. Helens before the 1980 eruptions. During this time, the volcano first erupted quietly to produce, produce a dome, then erupted violently at least twice producing a small volume of tephra, directed blast deposits, pyroclastic flows, and lahars. Roughly 700 years of dormancy were broken in about 1480 when large amounts of pale gray, gray pumice and ash started to erupt, beginning the Kalama period. The eruption in 1480 was several times larger than May 18, 1980 eruption. In 1482, another large eruption rivaling the 1980 eruption in volume is known to have occurred. Ash and pumice piled six miles northeast of the volcano to a thickness of three feet. Fifty miles away, the ash was two inches deep. Large pyroclastic flows and mud flows subsequently rushed down St. Helens' west flanks and into the Kalama River drainage system. This 150-year period next saw the eruption of less silica-rich lava in form of andesthetic ash that formed at least 
eight alternating light and dark colored layers. Blocky andesite lava then flowed from St. Helens Summit Crater down to down the volcano southeast flank. St. Helens reached its greatest height and achieved its highly symmetrical form by the time the Kalama eruptive cycle ended about 1647. The volcano remained quiet for the next 150 years. The 57-year eruptive period that started in 1800 was named after the Goat Rocks Dome and is the, the first time that both oral and written re records exist. 1800 eruption probably rivaled the 1980 eruption in size, although it didn't result in massive destruction of the cone. The ash drifted northeast over central and eastern Washington, northern Idaho, and western Montana. There were at least a dozen reported small eruptions of ash from 1831 to 1857, including one in late fall or early winter of 1842. Nearby settlers and missionaries witnessed a so-called Great Eruption. The event was apparently at or near Goat Rocks on the northeast flank. This small volume outburst created large ash clouds and mild explosions followed for 15 years. On April 17, 1857, the Republican, a Stila Coombe Washington newspaper, reported that, and I quote, Mount St. Helens or some other mount to the southward is seen to be in a state of eruption, end quote. The lack of a significant ash layer associated with this event indicates that it was a small eruption. This was the first reported volcanic activity since 1854. Mount St. Helens remained dormant from its last period of activity in 1857. Beginning on March 15, 1980, several small earthquakes shook the mountain, and in indicating that magma had begun to move below the volcano. On March 20th at 3.45 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, a shallow magnitude 4.2 earthquake centered below the volcano's north flank signaled the volcano's violent return from 123 years of hibernation. A gradually building earthquake swarm saturated, saturated the area seismographs and started to climax at about noon on March 25th, reaching peak levels in the next two days, including an earthquake registering 5.1 on the Richter scale, a total of 174 shocks of magnitude 2.6 or greater were recorded during those two days. At 12.36 p.m. on March 27th, explosions of steam caused by magma suddenly heating groundwater ejected and smashed rock from within the old summit crater, excavating a new crater 250 feet wide, sending an ash column about 7,000 feet into the air. By this date, a 16,000-foot-long eastward-trending fracture system had also developed across the summit area. This was followed by more earthquakes and a series of steam explosions that sent ash 10 to 11,000 feet above the vent. Most of this ash fell between 3 to 12 miles from its vent, but some was carried 150 miles away south to Bend, Oregon, and 285 miles east to Spokane, Washington. Now, I'd like to add a little section of personal experience during this time. I was eight years old. We, me, me, my mom, dad, sister, we were all living in McVinville, Oregon. Locals call it Mac, and so will I. By way of roads, Mac is over 100 miles away from Mount St. Helens. I think it's like 117. And Bend is all is another 157 miles southeast. In Mac, we received ash from this and other eruptions from the mountain, which we collected and stored in jars and old pharmacy pill containers. Also, due to the ash, we kids had to wear a dust mask while playing outside. However, whenever I rode off on my bike and thought I was out of my mom's view, I took the mask off, hung it off my handlebars on my bicycle, and would go to my friend, friend's house and play and whatnot. Upon returning home, I would get to a certain spot 
try to get to a certain spot, then put the mask back on and ride home. Unfortunately, the one spot I chose on one fateful day, my mom saw me put it back on, busted me for lying. <laughs> Just a little tidbit there. We also have home movies, eight millimeter, of the ash in the yard on rose bushes and in the street. On a clear day, you could see the mountain from Memorial Elementary School. It was the school I was attending at the time. I believe I was in the third grade at this time. It was an amazing time due to the fact that we changed subject matter to the current events happening in Washington. We were learning about volcanoes. We were doing everything we could to understand kind of what was going on. But, you know, we only had 1980 information. My mom also collected all newspapers during this time for a scrapbook that hasn't been started. But I still have all the clippings from this era. All right, let's get back to the events of March 27th, 1980. A second and new crater and blue flame were observed on March 29th. The flame was visible, emit, visibly emitted from both craters and was a, probably created by burning gases. Static electricity generated from ash clouds rolling down the volcano sent out lightning bolts that were up to two miles long. 93 separate outbursts re, were reported on March 30th. And increasingly strong harmonic tremors were first detected on April 1st alarming geologists and prompting then Washington Governor Dixie Lee Ray to declare a state of emergency on April 3rd. Governor Ray issued an executive order on April 30th creating a red zone around the volcano. Anyone caught in this zone without a pass faced a fine of $500 or six months in jail. This precluded many cabin owners from visiting their property. By April 7th, the combined crater was 1,700 feet long by 1,200 feet wide and 500 feet deep. A USGS team determined in the last week of April that a 1.5-mile diameter section of St. Helens' north face was displaced outward by at least 270 feet. This area of St. Helens was known as Goat Rock Domes. For the rest of April and early May, this bulge grew by 5 to 6 feet per day, and by mid-May, it extended more than 400 feet. As the bulge grew northward, the summit area behind it progressively sank, forming a complex down-drop block called the Graben. Geologists announced on April 30th that sliding of the bulge area was the greatest immediate danger and that such a landslide might spark an eruption. These changes in the volcano's shape were related to the overall deformation that increased the volume of, volcanic, of the volcano by 0.03 cubic miles by mid-May. This volume increase presumably corresponded to the volume of magma that pushed into the volcano and deformed its surface. Because the intruded magma remained below ground, it was not directly visible. It was called a cryptodome, in contrast a, to a true lava dome exposed at the surface. On May 7th, eruptions similar to those in March and April resumed, and over the next days, the bulge approached its maximum size. All activity had been confined to the 350-year-old summit dome and did not involve any new magma. A total of about 10,000 earthquakes were recorded, recorded prior to the May 18th event with most concentrated in a small zone less than 1.6 miles directly below the bulge. Shocks of magnitude 3.2 or greater occurred at slightly increasing rate during April and May with five earthquakes of a magnitude 4.0 or above per day in April 
and eight per day in the week before May 18th. Visible eruptions ceased on May 16th, reducing public, reducing public interest and consequently the number of spectators in the area. Mounting public pressure then forced officials to allow 50 carloads of property owners to enter the red zone on May 17th to gather whatever property they could carry. Another trip was scheduled for 10 a.m. the next day because the next day was Sunday. More than 300 loggers wouldn't be working in the area. As May 18th dawned, Mount St. Helens's activity didn't show any change from the pattern of the preceding month. The rate of the bulge movement, sulfur dioxide emissions, and ground temperature readings didn't reveal any changes indicating a catastrophic eruption. USGS volcanologist David Johnston was on duty at an observation post approximately six miles north of the volcano. As of 6 a.m., Johnston's measurements didn't in indicate any unusual activity. By the time of the climatic eruption, dacite magma intruding into the volcano have forced the north flank outward nearly 500 feet and heated the volcano's groundwater system, causing many steam-driven explosions. Suddenly, at 8.32 a.m. Pacific Daylight Savings Time, a magnitude 5.1 earthquake centered directly below the north slope triggered that part of the volcano to slide and approximately 7 to 20 seconds after the shock, the landslide, the largest in recorded history, traveled at 110 to 215 miles per hour and moved across Spirits Lake's west area. Part of it hit a 1,150-foot high ridge about 6 miles north. Some of the slides spilled over the ridge, but most of it moved 13 miles down the north fork of the Tootle River, filling its valley up to 600 feet deep with avalanche debris. An area of about 24 square miles was covered and total volume of the deposit was about 0.7 cubic miles. Scientists were able to reconstruct the motion of the landslide from a series of rapid photographs by Gary Rosenquist, who was camping 11 miles away from the blast. Rosenquist, his party, and his photographs survived because the blast was deflected by local topography one mile short of their location. Most of St. Helens' former north side became a rubble deposit 17 miles long, averaging 150 feet thick. The slide was thickest at one mile below Spirit Lake and thinnest at its western margin. The landslide temporarily displaced the eaters to Spirit Lake to the ridge north of the lake in a giant wave approximately 600 foot high. This in turn created a 290 feet avalanche of debris of which remained intact with roots but most of which had been sheared off at the stump seconds earlier by the blast of a superheated volcanic gas and ash that had immediately followed and overtook the initial landslide. The bedrid transported as the water returned to its basin raised the surface level of the lake by about 200 feet. Now we're going to be talking about parts of the, uh, we're going to be speaking about part of the uh, actual eruption and what kind of happened after um, of the first earthquake. So we're going to kind of break it all down. We're going to talk about pyroclastic flows, um, uh, initial lateral blast, which was a landslide, um, superheated, uh, yeah, also about superheated flow material. And we'll also touch on um, the direct blast zone, channelized blast zone, and so on and so forth. Let's start with the initial lateral blast. The landslide, landslide exposed the dacite magma in St. Helens neck to much lower pressure, causing the gas charged partially molten rock and high pressure steam above it to explode a few seconds after the landslide started. Explosions burst through the trailing part of the landslide, blasting rock debris northward. The resulting blast laterally directed the pyroclastic flow of very hot volcanic gases, ash, and pumice formed from new lava. While the pulverized old rock hugged the ground, initially moving at 220 miles per hour, 
but quickly accelerating to 670 miles per hour, and it might have briefly passed the speed of sound. The pyroclastic flow material passed over the moving avalanche and spread outward, devastating a fan-shaped area 23 miles across by 19 miles long. In total, about 230 square miles of forest was knocked down, and extreme heat killed trees miles beyond the blow blowdown zone. At its vent, the lateral blast probably did not last longer than about 30 seconds, but the northward radiating and expanding blast cloud continued for about another minute. Superheated flow material flashed water in Spirit Lake and the North Fork of the Toodle River to steam, creating a larger secondary explosion that was heard as far away as British Columbia, Montana, Idaho, and Northern California. Yet many areas closer to the eruption, Portland, Oregon, for example, did not hear the blast. This so-called quiet zone extended radially a few tens of miles from the volcano and was created by the calm the complex response of the eruption sound waves to differences in temperature and air motion of the atmospheric layers and to lesser to a lesser extent local topography later studies indicate that one-third of the 0.045 cubic miles of material in the flow was new lava and the rest was fragmented older rock now we'll touch on the lateral blast result the huge ensuing ash clouds sent skyward from St. Helens northern foot as visible through the quiet zone. The near supersonic lateral blast loaded with volcanic debris caused devastation as far as 19 miles from the volcano. The area affected by the blast can be subdivided into roughly three zones. Direct blast zone, the innermost zone averaged about eight miles in radius and, and an area in which virtually everything naturally or artificial was obliter obliterated or carried away. For this reason, this zone also has been called the tree removal zone. The flow of the material carried by the blast was not deflected by topographic features in this zone. The blast released energy equal to 24 megatons of TNT. Channelized blast zone, an intermediate zone, extended out to distances as far as 19 miles from the volcano. An area in which the flow flattened everything in its path and was channeled to some extent by topography. In this zone, the force and direction of the blast was strikingly demonstrated by the parallel alignment of toppled large trees broken off at the base of the trunk as if they were blades of grass mown by a skiff. This zone was also known as a tree down zone. Channeling and deflection of the blast caused strikingly, strikingly varied local effects that still remained conspicuous after some decades. Where the blast struck open land directly, it scorched it, breaking trees off short and stripping vegetation, even topsoil, thereby delaying revegetation for many years. Where the blast was deflected so as to pass overheated, overhead by several meters, it left the topsoil and the seeds it contained, permitting faster revegetation with scrub and herbaceous plants and later with saplings. Trees in the path of such high-level blasts were broken off wholesale at various heights, whereas nearby stands in more sheltered positions recovered comparatively rapidly without conspicuous long-term harm. The seared, seared zone, also called the standing dead zone. The outermost fringe of the impact area, a zone in which trees remained standing but were singed brown by the hot gases of the blast. By the time this, this pyroclastic flow hit its first human victims, it was still as hot as 680 degrees Fahrenheit and filled with suffocating gas and flying debris. Most of the 57 people known to have died in the day's eruption 
succumbed to asphyxiation while several died with burns. Lodge owner Harry R. Truman was buried under hundreds of feet of avalanche material. Volcanologist David A. Johnston was one of those killed, as was Reed Blackburn, a National Geographic photographer. Robert Landsberg, author, photographer, was killed by the ash cloud. He was able to protect his film with his body, and the surviving photos provided geologists with valuable documentation of the historic eruption. Subsequent outpourings of pyroclastic material from the breach left by the landslide consisted mainly of new magmatic debris rather than fragments of pre-existing volcanic rocks. The resulting deposits formed a fan-like pattern of overlapping sheets, tongues, and lobes. At least 17 separate pyroclastic flows occurred during the May 18th eruption, and their aggregate volume was about 0.05 cubic miles. The flow deposits were still at about 572 to 788 degrees Fahrenheit two weeks after they erupted. Secondary steam blast eruptions fed by this heat created pits on the northern margin of the pyroclastic flow deposits at the south shore of Spirit Lake on the upper part of the North Fork Toodle River. These steam blast explosions continued sporadically for weeks or months after the, after the emplacement of pyroclastic flows and at least one occurred a year later on May 16th, 1981. Now let's talk about the ash column. As the avalanche and initial pyroclastic flow were still advancing, a huge ash column grew to the height of 12 miles above the expanding crater in less than 10 minutes and spread tephra into the stratosphere for 10 straight hours. Near the volcano, the swirling ash particles in the atmosphere generated lightning, which in turn started many forest fires. During this time, parts of the mushroom-shaped ash cloud column collapsed and fell back upon the earth. This fallout, mixed with magma, mud, and steam, sent additional pyroclastic flows speeding down Mount St. Helens flanks. Later, slower flows came directly from the new north-facing crater and consisted of glowing pumice bombs and very hot pumice ash. Some of these hot flows covered ice or water, which flashed to steam, creating craters up to 65 feet in diameter and sending ash as much as 6,500 feet into the air. Strong high-altitude high wind carried much of this material east, east northeasterly from the volcano at an average speed of about 60 miles per hour. By 9.45 a.m., it had reached Yakima, Washington, 90 miles away, and by 11.45 a.m., it was over Spokane, Washington. A total of 4.5 inches of ash fell on Yakima and areas as far east as Spokane, were plunged into darkness by noon, where visibility was reduced to 10 feet and 0.5 inches of ash fell. Continuing eastward, St. Helens' ash fell in the western part of Yellowstone National Park by 10.15 p.m. and was seen on the ground in Denver, Colorado the next day. In time, ash fall from this eruption was reported as far away as Minnesota and Oklahoma, and some of the ash drifted around the globe within about two weeks. During the nine hours of vigorous eruptive activity, about 540 million tons of ash fell over an area more than 22,000 square miles. Total volume of ash before it is before its compactation by rainfall was about 0.3 cubic miles. The volume of the uncompacted ash is equivalent to that to about 0.05 cubic miles of solid rock, or about 7% of material of the amount of material that slid off in the debris avalanche. By around 5:30 p.m. on May 18th, the vertical ash column declined in stature but less severe outbursts continue through the next several days. I'm going to break down, we're going to just give you a little bit of the ash prop, 
give you a little bit of the ash properties. Generally, given that the way airborne ash is deposited after an eruption is strongly influenced by the meteorological conditions, a certain variation of, of the ash type will occur as a function of distance to the volcano or time elapsed from the eruption. The ash from Mount St. Helens is no exception, and hence the ash properties have large variations. Chemical composition. The bulk chemical composition of the ash has been found to be approximately 65% silicon dioxide, 18% aluminum oxide, 5% ferric oxide, 4% each calcium oxide and sodium oxide, and 2% magnesium oxide. Trace chemicals were also detected their concentrations varying as 0.05 to 0.09% chlorine, 0.02 to 0.03% fluorine, and 0.09 to 0.3% sulfur. The index of refraction, a number used in physics to describe how light propagates through a particular substance, is an important property of volcanic ash. This number is complex, having both real and imaginary parts. The real part indicating how light disperses and the imaginary part indicating how light is absorbed by the substance. It is known that the silicate particles have a real index of refraction ranging between 1.5 and 1.6 of visible light. However, there is a spectrum of colors associated with samples of volcanic ash, from very light to dark gray. This makes for variations in measured imag imaginary refractive index under visible light. In the case of Mount St. Helens, the ash settled in three main layers on the ground. The bottom layer was dark gray and was found to be abundant in older rocks and crystal fragments. The middle layer consisted of a mixture of glass shards and pumice, and the top layer was ash consisting of very fine particles. For example, when comparing the imaginary part of the reflective index of stratospheric ash from 15 kilometers and 18 kilometers from the volcano, it has been discovered that they have very they have similar values around 700 nanometers, around 0 0.009. While they differ significantly around 300 nanometers, here the 18 kilometer K was found to be around the 0 0.009 or 700 nanometers sample was much more absorbent than the 15 kilometer sample where it was found to be the K was found to be around 0 0.002 or just a little under the 300 nanometers. Now let's talk about the mudslides. The hot exploding material also broke apart and melted nearly all the mountain's glaciers along with most of the overlying snow. As in many previous St. Helens eruptions, this created huge lahars, which are volcanic mud flows and muddy floods that affected three of the four stream drainage systems on the mountain and which started to move as early as 8.50 a.m. Lahars traveled as fast as 90 miles per hour while still high on the volcano but progressively slowed to about three miles per hour on the flatter and wider parts of the rivers. Mud flows from the southern and eastern flanks had the consistency of wet concrete as they raced down Muddy River, Pine Creek, and Smith Creek to their confluence at the Lewis River. Bridges were taken out at the mouth of Pine Creek and the head of Swift Reservoir, which rose 2.6 feet by noon to accommodate the nearly 18 million cubic yards of additional water, mud, and debris. Glacier and snow melt mixed with tephra on the volcano, volcano's northeast slope to create much larger lahars. These mud flows traveled down the north and south forks of the Tootle River and joined at the confluence of the Tootle Forks and the Cowlitz River near Castle Rock at about, about around 1 p.m. 90 minutes after the eruption, the first mud flow had moved 27 miles upstream where observers at Warehouser's Camp Baker saw a 12-foot-high wall of muddy water and debris pass. 
near the confluence of the Toodles North and South Forks at Silver Lake, a record flood stage of 23.5 feet was recorded. A large but slow-moving mud flow with a mortar-like consistency was mobilized in early afternoon at the head of the Toodle River North Fork. By 2.30 p.m., the massive mud flow had destroyed Camp Baker, and in the following hours, seven bridges were carried away. Part of the flow backed up for 2.5 miles soon after entering the Cowlitz River, but most continued downstream. After traveling 17 miles further, an estimated 3.9 million cubic yards of materials was injected into the Columbia River, reducing the river's depth by 25 feet for a four-mile stretch. The resulting 13-foot river depth temporarily closed the busy channel to ocean-going freighters, costing Portland, Oregon an estimated $5 million U.S. million. Ultimately, more than 65 million cubic yards of sediment were dumped along the lower Calitz and Columbia rivers. Aftermath, the direct results. The May 18, 1980 event was the most deadly and economically destructive volcanic eruption in the history of the continental United States. Approximately 57 people were killed directly from the blast, 200 houses, 47 bridges, 15 miles of railway, and 185 miles of highway were destroyed. Two people were killed indirectly in accidents that resulted from poor visibility, and two suffered fatal heart attacks from shoveling ash. Then U.S. President Jimmy Carter surveyed the damage and said it looked more desolate than a moonscape. A film crew was dropped by helicopter on Mount St. Helens on May 23rd to document the destruction. However, their compasses spun in circles and they quickly became lost. A second eruption occurred the next day, but the crew survived and were rescued two days after that. The eruption ejected more than one cubic mile of material. A quarter of that volume was fresh lava from in the form of ash, pumice, and volcanic bombs, while the rest was fragmented older rock. The removal of the north side of the mountain, 13% of the cone's volume, reduced Mount St. Helens' height by about 1,280 feet and left a crater one to two miles wide and 2,100 feet deep with its north end opening in a huge breach. Their film, The Eruption of Mount St. Helens, later became a popular documentary. Had the eruption occurred one day later when loggers would have been at work rather than on a Sunday, the death toll could have been much higher. 83-year-old Harry R. Truman, who will be our main topic next week, had lived near the mountain for 54 years, became famous when he decided not to evacuate before the impending eruption. Despite re- repeated pleas by local authorities, his body was never found after the eruption. 30-year-old volcanologist David A. Johnston, who was stationed on nearby Coldwater Ridge, moments before his position was hit by the pyroclastic flow, Johnston radioed his famous last words, and I quote, Vancouver, Vancouver, this is it, end quote. Johnson's body was never found. Disputed death toll. There is a mi- minor controversy in, re- in regard to the exact death toll. The figure most commonly cited is 57. However, there are two points of dispute. The first point regards two officially listed victims, Paul Hyatt and Dale Thayer. They were reported missing after the explosion. In the aftermath, investigators were able to locate the individuals named Paul Hyatt and Dale Thayer who were alive and well. However, they were unable to determine who reported reported Hyatt missing, and the person who was listed as reporting Thayer missing claimed she wasn't the one who had done so. Since the investigators could not thus verify that they were the same Hyatt and Thayer who were reported missing, the names remained listed among the presumed dead. The second point regards three missing people who were not who are not officially listed as victims. Robert Ruffle, 
Stephen Whitesett or Whitset and Mark Melanson, Cowlitz County Emergency Services Management list them as possibly missing, not on the official list. According to Melanson's brother, in October 1983, Cowlitz County officials told his family that Melanson is believed a victim of a May 18, 1980 eruption, and that after years of searching, the family eventually decided he's buried in the ash. Taking these two points of dispute into, into consideration, the direct, direct death toll could be as low as 55 or as high as 60. When combined with the four indirect victims mentioned earlier, those numbers range from 59 to 64. More than 4 billion board feet of timber was damaged or destroyed, mainly by the lateral blast. At least 25% of the destroyed timber was salvaged after September 1980. Downwind of the volcano in areas of thick ash accumulation, many agricultural crops such as wheat, apples, potatoes, and alfalfa were destroyed. As many as 1,500 elk and 5,000 deer were killed. An estimated 12 million Chinook and Chohos salmon fingerlings died when their hatcheries were destroyed. Another estimated 40,000 young salmon were lost when they swam through turbine blades of the hydroelectric generators after reservoir levels were lowered along the Lewis River to accommodate possible mud flows and flood waters. In total, Mount St. Helens released 24 megatons of thermal energy, seven of which were a direct result of the blast. This is equivalent to 1,600 times the size of the atomic bomb dropped on Hiroshima. Ash damage and removal. The ash fall created some temporary major problems with transportation, sewage disposal, and water treatment systems. Visibility was greatly decreased during the ash fall, closing many highways and roads. Interstate 90 from Seattle to Spokane was closed for a week and a half. Air travel was disrupted for four between a few days and two weeks as several airports in eastern Washington shut down because of ash accumulation and poor visibility. Over a thousand commercial flights were canceled following airport closures. Fine grain gritty ash caused substantial problems for eternal combustion engines and other mechanical and electrical equipment. The ash contaminated oil systems and clogged air filters and scratched moving surfaces. Fine ash caused short circuits in electrical transformers, which in turn caused power blackouts. Removing and disposing of the ash was a monumental task for some eastern Washington communities. State and federal agencies estimated that over 2.4 million cubic yards of ash, equivalent to about 90, 900,000 tons in weight, were removed from highways and airports in Washington. The cost of the ash removal was $2.2 million and took 10 weeks in Yakima. The need to remove ash quickly from transport routes and civil works dictated the selection of some disposal sites. Some cities used old quarries and existing sanitary landfills. Others created dump sites wherever expedient. To minimize wind reworking of ash dumps, the surfaces of some disposal sites were covered with topsoil and seeded with grass. In Portland, the mayor eventually threatened businesses with fines if they failed to remove the ash from their parking lots. Overall cost, a refined estimate of $1.1 billion, $2.74 billion in 2007 dollars, was determined in a study by the International Trade Commission at the request of the United States Congress. A supplemental appropriation of $951 million for, for disaster relief was voted by Congress, of which the largest share went to Small Business Administration, U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, and the Federal Emergency Management Agency, or FEMA. There were also indirect and intangible costs of the eruption. 
unemployment in the immediate region of Mount St. Helens rose tenfold in the weeks immediately following the eruption and then returned to normal, near normal levels once timber salvaging and ash cleanup operations were underway. A, only a small percentage of residents left the region because of lost jobs owing to the eruption. Several months after May 18th, a few residents reported suffering stress and emotional problems, even though they had coped successfully during the crisis. Counties in the region requested funding for mental health programs to assist such people. Initial public reactions on May 18th eruption dealt a nearly crippling blow to tourism, an important industry in Washington. Not only was tourism down in, Mount, in the Mount St. Helens Gripper Pinchot National Forest area, but conventions, meetings, and social gatherings also were canceled or postponed at cities and resorts elsewhere in Washington and neighboring Oregon not affected by the eruption. The adverse effect on tourism and conventions, however, proved only temporary. Mount St. Helens, perhaps because of its reawakening, has regained its appeal for tourists. The United States Forest Service in the state of Washington opened visitor centers and provided access for people to view the volcano's devastation. Now, this takes us through the history of Mount St. Helens up to and through the May 18th eruption. Now, to give a little personal information again, on May 18th, myself, my sister, and my folks were on the Oregon coast digging for clams. We never heard or had any indication that the mountain had erupted until later that day when we got home and watched the local news from Portland, Oregon. Also, just to add a little little extra information here at the end of this, in 1983, we as a family went back to Oregon for a family vacation to visit relatives. And we decided to take my grandfather at the time with us. And we went north into Washington. Um, believe we got off the Castle Rock exit, took the road out as far as we could go, which at that time went only to the red zone. Along the way, we got to see a twisted up uh, truss bridge that was left on the side um, that was removed from its wherever it was on May 18th. And also a destroyed A-frame house. Um, we have pictures and obviously, I, as I mentioned before, we have a lot of eight millimeter film and I believe we even took some eight millimeter film from that day, I think. Anyways, you get to the red zone and you pretty much got to park in this parking lot. And then, um, they were giving helicopter rides up to the mountain. If you wanted to go, of course you had to pay. That was probably a pretty penny back in the day. Cause I know I think I asked about it and was told no, um, on, and pretty much a little bunch of little vendors. One vendor, uh, actually you stuck a penny in. And it would deface a United States penny and create a souvenir stamp on it of Mount St. Helens about the eruption. Um, one of the biggest, biggest things I remember um, driving up there was looking at all the devastation, you know, along the Tootle River, the North Fork, North Fork of the Tootle River. You can see, you know, how much wider it was in places. Um, also, you, when we got to the edge of the, what was now the red zone. The red zone obviously moved after the, after the eruption. You looked out and it looked nothing but like a wasteland. Even two years later, you know, or three years later, there was still no no life and I mean no life growing in that part of the of the pretty much what was the the mudslide or not mudslide but the uh, lahar coming down the Tudor River. However, now you can go all the way up with the new visitor centers and stuff they were talking about and recreate and creation of some new roads. You can go all the way to what they call Johnston's Ridge, which is named after David A. Johnson. You can go up there and you can, I, I haven't been up there, so I've only read about it, um, but you can literally look at the devastation from seeing the mountain right in front of you. 
um, and I'm probably off to your left-hand side of it would be Spirit Lake. They have lots of hiking trails. I'm Like I said, all I've done is looked what is up there. There's a lot of hiking trails you can take. Um, and you can even actually climb to the crater of the mountain on the uh, south side, I believe it is. But anyways, that's just a little extra information I wanted to give um, about going up there back in 1983 and some of the stuff that I've seen that uh, you can do now because um, now it's opened all the way to the mountain. Obviously, if the mountain is, is erupting, they'll close it. Anyways, and also if you go to, what is it? I think it's Mount St. Helens, gosh, I want to say .org. <laughs> if you just look up Mount St. Helens, look for its own webpage by the USGS, I think it is, and you'll have, actually, you can look at the uh, volcano cam. Now, as long as it's not cloudy there, you can see the volcano, you can see right into the mouth of the volcano, which is kind of cool. In my opinion, it's kind of cool. So anyways, um, just to finish up here, I, I know the name of this podcast is Used and Abused, a music podcast. However, I like to change things up sometimes. Um, when I realized that, you know, this, my, the fourth episode of this podcast was going to be Friday, May 18th. I knew right then, then I wanted to do something with Mouse and Helens. Um, I ended up finding, finding an album and unfortunately it kind of arrived late to going over the history. So I decided to do it in a two part section where I'll give the history. Um, next week we'll go over the history of Harry Truman. I'll, I'll, I'll listen to the album, get, get a chance to really listen to the album. and, and here it was released in 1981 i didn't even know there was an album but we'll we'll talk about more about that next week i also like to explain why i went this direction not only with this or a little more why i went why i went this direction with this show for me uh dealing with anniversary events i remembered i remember and witness and witness parts from afar or in person i believe is the only way history will be remembered and i like to i like to share my experiences one thing i found out in the fall of 1981, my family, we moved back to Battle Mountain, Nevada, and my friend, people I was friends with then, knew nothing about Mount St. Helens or even the events of May 18th, 1980. I was able to give them my experience even with being an eight-year-old kid. And so pictures from books, magazines, and newspaper articles I had from that event. I still have those papers and magazines and books today and hope to soon be putting those newspaper clippings into a scrapbook. I always try to watch as much as I can on YouTube during the anniversary of this day, getting new insights into this whole event. If you want to look up, look up some information, just type in Mount St. Helens eruption. I plan to do this anytime an anniversary of an event lands on the day of that week's episode. For example, if 9-11 or September 11th lands on a Friday, then I'll do a show about September 11th. You know, the hi- history about the buildings, my memory of the day, what I was doing and thoughts about what I was seeing live on TV. Also, we'll include probably some patriotic music, you know, uh, America the Beautiful, stuff like that, and, and go over some of that stuff. But again, that is just an example. If you enjoy episodes like this, let me know via Twitter, email, or comment on the Instagram post for the current episodes. I will be starting trying to make an Instagram post for every episode of the podcast. Who knows? Maybe down the road, I'll make another podcast about history, but that's down the road. And then won't be used and abused. It'll be something different. Next week, we will be back to another music podcast with an album I've never heard, but I will also, it will also be part two of this week's. However, I will, we'll be talking about Harry Truman, not the 33rd president of the United States, but Harry R. Truman, Truman owner of Spirit Lake Lodge. But that's next week. In closing, I would like to extend my thoughts and prayers to the people of Hawaii dealing with the current volcanic activity 
there on Kilauea. Please be safe. I would also like to take this opportunity to apologize to Native Americans for not pronouncing names correctly of the tribes and of the people in the story I told earlier. I'm sure I got a few of, them, a few of the names maybe close, but again, I'd like to apologize for that. Also, I would like to thank everyone out there for downloading this episode and listening to this episode. If you're new and you haven't subscribed, please do so you won't miss any other episodes. Hey guys and gals, at this moment here at the end of the podcast, I just want to say I'm sorry for not actually having this podcast available on the morning of May 18th. If you hear, if that's actually picked up, uh, I've actually got a YouTube video on right now on my TV of live streaming of one of the fissures, fissures from Kilauea in the Lilani estate area. And that's been taking up a lot of my time. It's not an excuse. I let it get in my way. Unfortunately, I've become a lover of volcanoes. And it started May 18th, 1980. Actually, it probably started March 27th when Mount St. Helens first blew up. First popped top. However, I want to apologize to you. My fans, people who subscribe, download and listen to my show, listen to my episodes. I'm going to try to make a promise to you. And I know those of you that are Star Wars fans, there is, do or do not, there is no try, as Master Yoda would say. However, I'm going to do my best to never allow this to happen again. I am going to try to get a few extra episodes in the can um, saved on Anchor. So if I had to release something right away, um, I could do that. But I just want to let you guys know I am sorry. And I'm a, I hope you accept my apology for screwing this up really bad. And that's like a jet engine that's one of those pictures actually shooting in the air. If you could hear that, I don't know if you can or not. But again, I want to say I'm sorry. From the bottom of my heart, and you should expect better of me. And I expect better of myself. So hopefully you can accept my apology. And next week's episode will be available for download at, on Friday night or Friday morning, you know, midnight. It'll be scheduled up in the books ready to go for Friday downloads. All right. I want to thank you guys all. And next are the plugs for Used and Abused. Have a great weekend and a great week, guys and girls. Used and Abused, the music podcast can be found on Twitter at Used Abused Pod. Instagram, Used and Abused Pod. And and is spelled out A-N-D. Email, usedandabusedpod at gmail.com. Again, and is spelled out. Also, I will add those into, um, I'll see if I can add links into the actual description of the podcast. The podcast can be found on Apple iTunes, Anchor, Google Play, that's Google Play Music, Pocket Cast, Overcast, and Radio Public. Please subscribe so you don't miss a new episode or any mini episodes that will be coming very soon. I'm working on trying to figure out what to do for a mini episode. Also, please rate and review Use and Abused, a music podcast. Five stars, please. Five stars. And until next week, have a great weekend. 
Be kind to everyone and keep the music playing.